Good morning, everyone. It's a joy to be here with you guys and worship the Lord together. Would you join me as we continue with a prayer before we come to the Word? Living God, would you help us so to hear your holy word this morning that we may truly understand. Not understanding, we may believe, and believing, we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, joyfully seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Scripture this morning is from Galatians chapter 3. Uh, verses 10 through 13. Again, that's from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. You can turn to page 914 in the Pew Bible. When you found, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear now the word of the Lord. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written... Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. For the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is the word of the Lord. Warnings against false teachers for the church is something that we see again and again in the Bible. From the Old Testament, when false prophets would cry out, peace, peace, when actually there was no peace, and in fact judgment was around the corner due to sin and idolatry, to New Testament false teachers who infiltrated the church with legalism and special knowledge they call. And we as Christ followers are given this charge to contend for the faith. As Jude charged the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now to contend means to struggle. It means to fight, and that's exactly what disciples of Christ are called to do. And we realize that Christian life is a warfare, and it is a battle against spiritual forces. You see, there's more to life than what meets our eyes and this natural world that we live in, because we are engaged in a spiritual battle against the schemes of the devil. As soldiers, yes, we can take a break, but essentially we're called to fight. We can't be passive, but instead we are called to contend, to struggle, and fight for the faith. But in order for us to fight for the faith that's been given, we need to know the content of the faith, the message that's been delivered for the saints. And we remember that this faith was delivered so there's a message, there's a doctrine. Just as a message is delivered by a carrier, we don't get to change the content of the message. We get to steward the message that's been given. Jude fought for the truth, delivered for the saints, and called the church to do that. Apostle Peter 
charge the saints to be ready to give the reason for the hope that is in us, that we have in Christ. And Apostle Paul, again and again, as he ministered to various churches, contended for the true gospel, fighting against false gospel and false teachers. The question I want to ask us this morning is, how have you been contending for the faith that has been delivered to the saints? How have you been fighting for the faith that's been given to us? Last week, um, we were introduced with a 20th century contender of faith, J. Gresham Machen, who fought for sound doctrine against the time of the liberalism of 1900s. You see, it's not just the 1900s. People of God have always been called to be set apart. Yet, whether in the Old Testament time when the Israelites were about to enter the Promised Land or when they did, to the New Testament times when churches were planted in various cities, people of God have always been tempted to look like, the part, look like and be like the world in a fear of not being left out of the cultural conversations. The liberals of 1900s they didn't want to be left out of the cultural conversation. They wanted to remain relevant. Liberalism of 1900s was essentially a theology that accommodated to the modernist sensibilities and had many things, but I want to just emphasize two parts. It primarily rejected the supernatural, and it believed in human goodness and potential. Rejection of the supernatural and elevation and celebration of human goodness and potential. And when you have this sort of liberal theology directing, it means for the doctrine of Scripture will no longer be recognized as inerrant and authoritative. God will be reduced to a God of love and acceptance without His holiness. And Christ is reduced to be a being a good man or a great teacher, and cross reduced to a great example of love, but not a salvific love on our behalf. And the aim of salvation is pointed toward a utopian society of equity here on earth. And for the church, it neglects its commission ceases to be salt and light. It does not go, on, go out to make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and neither does it teach everything that Jesus taught. However, we are called to contend. We are called to fight. Just as the Old Testament prophets contended, as New Testament apostles contended, as early church fathers contended, as Martin Luther contended, risking his life, and as J. Gresham Machen contended, we too, as followers of Christ, as saints called to be set apart, are to contend for sound doctrine. And I think this has become even more clear. As many of us, in the name of being humble, remain too silent, too long. Scripture calls us to contend. 
calls us to be ready to give the reason for the hope that we have in Christ. It calls us to apologize, not to say we're sorry, but to defend our Christian faith. And as Machen reminded us, I think one of the great principles to keep in mind is keeping history and doctrine side by side as we engage the culture today with the Word of God. In 1 Corinthians 15, we are told that the gospel was received. It's the message. It's the doctrine. And this is of the foremost, first importance. This is the heart and the crux of the gospel. And Machen reminds us side by side that Christ died. This is history. We start with history because what we believe about God is based on the history that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, this is doctrine that is based on the history that Christ died. As liberalism rejects the supernatural and believes and elevates in human goodness and potential, God is reduced to God of love, and man is recognized essentially good, no longer needing salvation and improving on his own. And we're reminded about two biblical distinctions that we need to keep in mind when we look at the Bible. The distinction, the first, the creator-creature distinction, because Bible starts this way, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, meaning that there was a time when nothing else existed but God. And thus God is transcendent. He's not like you and me. And the second distinction that with the fall of man, and especially we see this very clearly in the first couple of chapters of Romans, with the fall of man, there's a distinction between holy God and sinful humanity. One that reflects the original created reality, creator, creature, and one that reminds us very regularly our existential present reality that we're sinful and God is holy. As liberalism rejected the supernatural and belief and elevated the belief in humanity, Scripture no longer is inerrant. It no longer has any authority. And we are reminded that, uh, as Machen pointed out, in response to the critics of the Bible, he showed both the external evidence and the internal evidence of scriptural authority. Starting with script, um, history, he looked at the external manuscript. When you look at the Bible, you start with the actual books for what history actually says. That these letters, these gospel accounts were actually written not so far apart as many liberals would claim, thus not having authority, but written really early. Many witnesses were still alive when the writings were done. And after establishing that external authority, we're also reminded that there's an internal authority, that the very writers, the apostles who wrote, recognized that they were writing Scripture, and that the Word of God attests to itself as being God's holy word. When Paul speaks of Luke's gospel, when Peter speaks of Paul's letters, when Paul sees his own writing, 
they all recognize that these are holy words of God. Since the Bible is the inspired word of God, by definition, it is without error. The Bible is true and without error because we worship God who is true. Today, as we continue, I want to challenge us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And there are three points today also. Three doctrine, biblical doctrine, that we are called to contend for, that we're to fight for as we distinguish from what is not of the Bible versus what people back in 1900s as well as today would claim. Christ, salvation, and church. Three points, Christ, salvation, and church. First point, Christ. As liberalism rejects the supernatural and elevates human potential, and as Christ is reduced to be a good man and perhaps a great teacher, the cross is also just ended. It ends as being an example of love, no longer a substitutionary death that we desperately need. You see, throughout church history, you've had false doctrine about Christ. Nothing new, and it will continue to come back. From the early days when the divinity of Christ was questioned by um, the, the heretics who taught Arianism, claimed that the Son of God was, did not have the same way, was not in the same way divine as the Father was divine. And when we read the Bible, whether through the I am statements of the Gospel of John or the forgiving of sin that only God can do, just to mention a few, it goes against the very clear biblical teaching of the full, true divinity of Christ. But interestingly, at least in the early church history, um, the heresies focused more on that Jesus was not fully human. Far more heresies um, undermining his full humanity. There were those who believed that Jesus did not actually have a human mind. And if he didn't have a human mind, he wouldn't be qualified to be the savior of humanity. There were those who um, argued that the divine and human nature were somehow mixed into something else, like a third thing. Combining the divine and human so that Jesus ends up not having our human nature or true divine nature. There are those who taught that um, there are two persons in Christ. But we believe, as the Bible teaches, that Christ is one person with two natures, truly God, truly man. Liberalism back then, and liberalism today, there are many still who reject the miracles of Jesus Christ, from the virgin birth to his resurrection. And if you reject these you reject who Jesus claimed to be. Because if you think about when we went through the book of Exodus, or more recently when we went through the book of Matthew, um, when you look at Moses and look at the function of the miracles, um, for Moses at least, it shows that God had appointed Moses as a prophet when he did these miracles. And for Jesus, the miracles he pointed, he performed, pointed to the reality that he truly was indeed the Son of God. You reject his miracles, you reject his deity. And that's exactly what the liberals back then, 
and many liberals today end up doing. If Jesus was only just a man, which was the case in uh, Machen's days, and as many today would claim, he could not have died for sinners like you and me. And there's no possibility of substituting atonement. But when you look at the Old Testament and how it points to the New Testament, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system is based on this substitutionary atonement, pointing to what Jesus fulfilled as we've been going through the book of Hebrews. The sad thing is the Christ of liberalism is just mere example. Sure, a selfless example, but not a salvific one. And thus it does not teach us the full, complete picture of who Jesus is, leaving people with a burden of justification on their own, which we cannot bear. However, the, the good news is that the Bible does teach us that he is spotless, pure, without sin, and he stood in our place for sinners like us. In Galatians 3, reads, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus Christ became a curse on behalf of his people through his death on the cross. And apart from faith in him, we're still all under the curse of the law. You see, Christ was not just merely a selfless example. He was a sinless, perfect substitute. And the miracles that he performed point to his true identity as a son of God. And that's why we fight for this truth that Jesus is truly, fully God and man. In liberalism, as they emphasize just mere imitation of Christ without affirming his imputation, we're left to bear our salvation on our own strength, which we cannot do. In liberal theology, Christian strives for the righteousness by his or her own strength. And it's not good news at all. It's the very same thing that's repeated throughout history, coming back again. You see, our Savior, as we've gone earlier in the Westminster Larger Catechism, Question 38 teaches us that no one who is God can withstand the wrath of God against sin and grant us everlasting life. Only truly God, truly man can save us from sin. And as question 39 taught us, yet only one who is man, who has the same nature as us, can bear the curse for our sins in the same nature that sinned in the beginning. Only Jesus is a perfect obedient second Adam who overcame the disobedient first Adam while never ceasing to be the eternal Son of God. Every other month we rotate. Next week we're going to recite the Nicene Creed 
And we recite this history and doctrine regularly. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake, he was crucified on the Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This is the Christ of the Bible we are called to contend for. Truly God, truly human. And history will repeat, emphasizing one or the other. But we are to contend for both. A friend of mine sent me a video link this week, past week, um, a conversation amongst pastors talking about faith. And the MC asked the question about salvation. And this was the question that the MC asked. What are we saved from? And this is supposed to be from a pretty well-known quote-unquote evangelical pastor. And his response was this, to the question, what are we saved from? From ourselves. We are killing ourselves, was his response. I was floored. Granted, I knew that this wasn't a bunch of uh, Reformed pastors, but saved from ourselves was his response. How about safe from hell? How about safe from the wrath of God, as Bible speaks? As I talk, continue about the second point about salvation, when liberalism rejects the supernatural and elevates human goodness, the gold, salvation, becomes this kind of utopian society of equity here on earth. And we see that push now probably more. If you lose sight of holy God and sinful man, you don't need a savior. You don't need salvation in that sense of the biblical truth. You don't need Christ to be truly God and truly human. You can have God, Jesus, as a good teacher. And salvation doesn't need to be about salvation from sin, death, and the wrath of God. One liberal theologian during Machen's time when he looked at the state of American liberal church, said this in describing liberalism, that liberalism as teaching that it's about a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the administration of Christ without a cross. In the 1900s, young people sought to bring, quote-unquote, the kingdom of God through social action. And this message was called the social gospel. And they sought to address the poverty, especially in New York, preaching a gospel of social improvement. This was their definition of salvation. Social gospel reduced human problem to material poverty. And that's what happens when you ignore supernatural, spiritual, and everything is material. Just explain everything on a naturalistic level. But when we read the Bible, we know that our problem is far more severe and profound than mere physical need. 
the true definition of sin, as Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us, is, is about any want or lack of uh, conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. For social gospelers, the wage of sin is poverty. But the Bible teaches that the wage of sin is death, eternal punishment. For those who are in Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to all who are in him by grace alone, through faith alone, as Adam's sin was also imputed to all who are in him with the curse. The sad truth, when I heard that pastor give that response, isn't that far off from the social gospelers who taught that we must save ourselves through love. For the social gospelers, the hope of the world is to apply just the broad, generic principles of Jesus, not the message of salvation through him. In Romans 3, Scripture reads, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In Romans 3, Paul stresses that the law condemns us because it gives us knowledge of our sin. And it reminds us of our need for justification, that we're not in right standing before God, and that we can't get this right standing, this justification by ourselves, because we fall short. And we need this justification that comes through Jesus Christ, who in his full divinity and humanity kept the law perfectly, such that faith in him alone is what gives us right standing before God. The gospel remedy for our guilt is justification. Where our sin is imputed to Christ and his righteousness is imputed to us. When we think about the biblical doctrine of depravity in contrast to the elevated understanding of humanity by the liberal theologians, we come to quickly realize that we are completely dependent on God's free, sovereign grace. This is the doctrine of salvation we contend for. The world might say otherwise, but that when, before we are justified, we stand guilty, condemned. We're dead in our sin, enemies of God. That's who we were. But the saving faith that's been given to us, the message, understands the facts of the gospel. 
it accepts the truth of the gospel and it trusts in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Our works can't contribute to our salvation. But as we've been taught again and again, it follows from that. And this is what we contend for. And this is what we rejoice in. Because this is good news. Earlier this year, when the Church of England voted to allow Anglican clergy to bless same-sex civil unions, there were some in England who thought that didn't go far enough because it didn't um, include same-sex church weddings. But far, far away in the continent of Africa, this change was too far, too much, for the Anglican leaders of Kenya, Nigeria, and Uganda. These three churches, um, membership of about 35 million, they rejected England's compromise. Archbishop um, Stephen of Uganda said in a statement, the Church of England, in offering to bless that sin of same-sex civil marriage, is making contradictory statements and expecting everyone to believe both can be true at the same time. As a church of Uganda, we cannot accept that. God cannot bless what he calls sin. And the Anglican Church of Uganda broke also with the U.S. Episcopal Church, which is a member of the global Anglican communion when it installed an openly gay bishop. Point number three about the church as liberalism continues to reject supernatural and elevates human goodness and potential, what ends up happening is that the church loses its saltiness. It's inevitable when you stop recognizing the Bible as the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. And as it loses its saltiness, it begins to look and smell like the world. In Ephesians 4, um, reads, as Apostle Paul speaking and writing, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to, that, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God. Paul urges the Ephesians, the Christians there, to unity, but the appeal is to the one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God the Father, on the basis of all this. Ministers here are called to build up the church as one body of Christ for the work of ministry. But you can only be faithful to do this if they're teaching the one faith that's been given to us in the scripture. The best way for the church to the societal problems, the best thing for the church to do is to remain the church and faithfully 
proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the church is called to do. We contend for the unity of the church every Saturday morning as we intercede, but for the church to be united with biblical integrity, remaining faithful to the word of God in this changing world, fulfilling the mission that God has given us, going and making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded, not just some, but everything. You see, when we get the Christ of the Bible and the salvation as the Scripture teaches, it saves us to be united with God, but also with other Christians to the church. In 1932, um, a new report on foreign mission came out based mainly in, about the ministry in China. It was titled, Rethinking Missions, A Layman's Inquiry After 100 Years. It was a seven-volume report by seven-member denominational committee, including the Presbyterian Church. And the report ultimately concluded with this need to change change in light of the Christianity's relationship with other world religions. And this old motive for missions of saving people from hell and judgment need to be abandoned, so they say. And instead, the aim of missions should be to cooperate with other religions to make the world a better place. Sounds familiar, right? Machen rightly contended against this new missionary movement, this re-evaluation. And with his own conscience, he couldn't support into this mission board. So what did he do? He started another agency, but in doing so, he was disciplined for it. He was commanded to quit, but he refused. He was unjustly tried at a liberal presbytery of New Brunswick, not too far from here, and eventually suspended from ministry in 1936, when he founded the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. In the book of Judges, uh, the men of Gilead, led by Jephthah, um, fought against the Ephraimites. To identify the enemies, the soldiers of Gilead required the stranger, if they don't know for sure who they were, to say a word, shibboleth. Now, Ephraimites could not pronounce this word, and this inability to pronounce correctly served as a password to distinguish. It's like a test word, right? To see if this is the true identity of the person that they can trust. J.I. Packard long ago spoke of one such shibboleth of our time, and the need for the church to use certain words to force people to reveal what they truly stand for. And that word, he said, was inerrancy. You can ask people what they believe about the inspiration of the scriptures, but the more poignant question that reveals how we truly commit to is do you believe in the inerrancy of scripture? This was already close to 45 years ago 
when in October of 1978 in Chicago, some 200 evangelical leaders gathered in a conference and wrote out a statement of belief titled the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. And more recently, in 2018, a statement on social justice and the gospel, also known as the Dallas Statement, was written when there was a growing kind of a mix of Christian gospel with the social gospel, with critical race and cultural Marxism. The signatories prophetically recognized before this whole COVID, which accelerated everything and made it so crystal clear now, but years before, they recognized the onslaught of dangerous and false teaching that threatened the gospel, misrepresent scripture, and led people away from the gospel, grace of God in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, when we defend the truth of the gospel as delivered to us in the scriptures, when we contend and battle for the truth in this spiritual warfare, and when we do our best, and we do it with gentleness and respect, although many times we don't want to be gentle or respectful because they don't seem so gentle or respectful, we are to expect to be slandered and reviled. Don't be alarmed when we are slandered and reviled, even when we are contending with gentleness and respect. But instead of being alarmed, expect that. And also, Rejoice, because the Bible says we are blessed when we are. Peter says this, but even more, our Savior and Lord says this in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Brothers and sisters, we are blessed when we suffer for doing good, contending for the faith. So let us obey Christ joyfully in this day and age. Let us pray. Lord, forgive us for the way we have lived, often speaking in the language of being humble, not being abrasive, remaining too silent too long. Grant us wisdom and courage to contend for the faith, the truth you've given us. Help us be courageous in stewarding the message that's been given to us for your glory. Lord, we're weak. We are afraid. We're not any different from the Israelites who were called to be set apart when they were about to enter the promised land. And we're not any different from the Christians in the early church. Always feeling the temptation and the urge to look like the world, not to be left out, wanting so much to be relevant. When you call us to be faithful stewards of the message that's been given. So Lord, grant us your grace. Help us to look to you as we rejoice in the gospel message. 
Let's continue to take time now to examine our hearts and come before the Lord.